If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tess. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. Yes, it is the month of June, which is Pride Month. And when I think of Pride Month, I always think back to how Pride Month started. So I always think of Marsh P. Johnson, the Stonewall Riots, of course, in 1968. Right, right. And also the mystery around the death of Marsha P. Johnson, which... I could go on and on for days about, but she was somebody that fought for human rights and fought for the rights of her people and fought for liberation. And it also made me think about how trans black women are just being murdered at an exponential rate in America. Then it made me think of the case for today, where one woman's fight for her life became one of the most controversial cases in America. into our players so we got a group of white folks and a group of black folks so (laughs) we're gonna get the white folks out the way first so for the white folks we have dean schmitz who is our victim we have jenny torson who is his girlfriend then we've got molly flattery which is his ex-girlfriend and then we have dave with no last name who was there on our side we got larry ty thomas who is cc's boyfriend zayvon zay smith Cece's friend, Ronil Harris, her other friend, Lativia Taylor, her roommate slash cousin M, and Krishan Cece McDonald, our murderess. So Cece McDonald was born May 26 in the south side of Chicago. She grew up in a family where there was a lot of turmoil in the house, so she was really uncomfortable and ended up leaving the house at the age of 13. She ran away and she had no money, she had nowhere to go. She was in Chicago, so She turned to the streets where she was homeless and she also was working as a sex worker. She navigated those harsh streets until she was around 18 years old when she moved to Minnesota. When her Greyhound touched down in Minnesota, she already could tell that there was a big difference between the life that she grew up in in the streets of Chicago, you know, as black as hood, like it's, it's survival versus the very diverse streets of Minnesota. She even enrolled in a community college. She was getting her life together. She was enrolled in a community college, and she was studying to become a fashion designer. Uh, Krishan and her roommate, Lativia, they were roommates in Minneapolis. They were best friends, but they were more than that. You know what I'm saying? So, like, they called each other cousins. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you my cousin. Like, we that close. So, on June 5th, 2011, Cece and Lativia, they decided they wanted to have some friends over. So, of course, they invited Ty over, because that's Cece's boyfriend, right? They invited Zay over, one of their friends, and they also invited over Roniel. The area that they lived in was really close. Like, it was downtown, really close to the nightlife, social life, you know what I'm saying? But they had everybody over to drink, to smoke, you know, have a little cookout in the backyard. We just, we chilling here for the night, you know? We're not really going out, we're not really on the scene. 
But around 11.30, Lativia was like, hey, let's run down to the 24-hour grocery store and get me a little snacky snack because her food stamps have just hit. So she was, you know, wanted a snack, which makes a lot of sense to me because how many times I've been like, you know what, friend? I'm headed over to your house, but my food stamps just hit. I'm about to go get fruit. Right. Like something random because you can do that. Your stamps just hit. Yeah. So... Around 11.30, they left. The surveillance camera at the store, which was called Cub Foods, they caught her walking in about a minute before midnight, and then they left around 25 after, heading back to the apartment. Outside of the Schooner Tavern was a group of white people. Dean Schmidt, his girlfriend Jenny Thorson, his ex-girlfriend Molly, and Dave, which is a weird crowd Already suspicious. <laughs> it's a weird group of friends. So, they're drunk. And Molly's got a drink in her hand. They're standing outside the bar smoking a cigarette. Down the block is Cece and her friends. They're walking up because they got to pass this on their way home. Seeing that the sidewalk was blocked by people drinking and talking, Cece's boyfriend, Ty, moved them, you know, into the street to move around the group. I already have a problem with that because I am not, I am not getting off the sidewalk for a white person. You're going to have to run me over. <laughs> and don't look at me crazy because I'm not getting, I'm not doing it. My answer is I do, I'm not doing it. She dead ass will. I will run. It, we will elbow each other. And she'll be like, I'm other. sorry. Did you not see me? <laughs> she, I know you see me here. She will straight up do that, y'all. I was going to say, I really like when niggas pull you like in a direction. You know what I'm saying? Like when a man takes a lead. But like specifically on the sidewalk, like niggas that won't let you walk on the outside side of the sidewalk. Love that shit. I'm the man in my relationship. <laughs> So, anyway, they walked around, and they start hearing a hurl of insults coming at them. And it's mainly Dean and Molly, and they're screaming, Niggers, you niggers, blah, blah, blah. Go white back shit. to where it came from. Go back to Africa. Shit. Yeah. All that racist shit that they love to throw at us. Like, can we can we get some new shit? I was like, two cent jokes. Like, even then, the, the slurs started becoming very homophobic, very real phobic of everything so very like i hate anybody who is not who is not me and it's like these are the same old tired ass jokes. anybody who is not a white cis man right they're like hurling all these insults at cc and her boyfriend they're calling an f word not fuck and they're just saying a whole bunch of like racist homophobic all of that shit it's just this is how you imagine minnesota though right Right, because I'm thinking just White about... mountains. <laughs> I'm thinking about George Floyd. Like, it's a mess up there. Cece, she starts yelling back at Molly and confronting her. And Molly jumped big and bad, and she was like, I'll take all you bitches on. She then smashed the cup of liquor that she had into Cece's face so hard that she viciously cut into the white meat, slashing her salivary gland. They start tussling the street. They're pulling each other's hair. Cece's face is stinging because there's liquor in this open gash in her face. Right. Glass bottles can be heard smashing on the sidewalk, and it turns out that that sound is Dean hurling beer bottles at Cece. He's trying to hit her with these, and I guess get her off. Dean then runs up on the two women who are fighting, grabs Cece from behind, and pulls her off of Molly. Molly is on the ground, and Cece starts backing away from Dean, and she's feeling, like, lightheaded, and she's kind of stumbling back, looking back, looking at him, like, right. you know, you don't turn your back. It. He starts to come at her. Her friends have dipped, and they think that she's, like, running away with them, but, you know, like we said, she's not turning her back. Right. Dean comes charging at her, but Cece's looking at Dean. He's got his eyes on her. He's coming towards her. He's obviously angry. He's coming... 
not slow. Like, he's coming aggressively at her. So she reaches in her bag, and she grabs a pair of sewing scissors. Like, they were, you know, sewing scissors are stupid sharp. Yeah, those sewing shears. She probably had it for her wig or something. Well, you know, she was in fashion school. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. She grabs her scissors just like, you know, as women, we be on the street. And when you feel uncomfortable around a nigga, you, you looking for anything of, yeah. that you can grab to, like, make you feel at least a little bit of safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether it's pepper spray or a little taser, a little knife attached to your keychain, something. Whatever you need. So it makes sense that she went and grabbed it. So she grabs the scissors in her purse, and Dean yanks at her hair trying to get her on the ground. And they're tussling, and Cece does like a, get off me, son, you know, trying to, yeah. trying to get him off. And the next thing Cece and all the witnesses see is Dean, who's wearing a back shirt. He backs off of Cece and he starts screaming, she stabbed me, she stabbed me. And he lays on the ground crying out in pain. And the stab happened so fast that many, including Cece, didn't fully comprehend what had happened. But what we did know was that Dean was stabbed one time in the heart and was then pronounced dead. We are back this week with our episode sponsor, Hood Adjacent Tees. Hood Adjacent Tees was founded by their CEO and director of dopeness, Patricia and her family. Listen, they have t-shirts for every occasion. I'm looking at the website now and I told y'all these Juneteenth t-shirts are fire. They are so cute and I definitely want to grab one. You have to make sure that you grab one as well. As well as having some amazing designs, you also have the option to custom design your own shirt. So you can get matching ones with your boo, or you can get everybody right this summer for the family reunion. Now, make sure that when you go to Hood Adjacent T's website, they use the discount code SWK to get 20% off of your order. Hood Adjacent is also sponsoring a special giveaway for one lucky listener no one won in the discussion group last week so y'all have one more chance to win before the instagram followers come in and swoop up your prize you can find them at hoodish.org but you know we're gonna have the link in the description box support our sponsor and now back to the show Now, remember when all of this is going on, Cece is leaking from the face. So her boyfriend runs to her and tries to get her to, like, hold her face, you know, try to stop the wound, try to get a blood clot going on. And they end up flagging down a police car. So when the police get out of the car, he immediately arrests Cece and takes her to the hospital where she got, like, 18 stitches on her face. Like, this cut was deep. It was. There was blood everywhere she was wearing this like my little pony shirt and it's like soaked in the front you know how like niggas sweat and you get that like ring it's that of blood so it's a lot so they finally get her cleaned up at the hospital and then around 4 51 a.m they take her she's in like a medical gown and some bare almost barefoot or slippers she probably got them hospital socks exactly and they put her in an interrogation room and they're like oh the detective is gonna be here in a minute so she waits and she waits and she waits for hours so they put her in at 4 11 the detectives didn't come in to start questioning her till 8 11 in the morning so and this whole altercation happened around midnight around midnight midnight 30 ish mm-hmm. so midnight 25 is when they <laughs> i love this midnight 25 right because you need to know which 12 <laughs> so around like midnight 25 is when they were seen leaving the grocery store mm-hmm. so anyways they start interrogating her for hours like on and on question after question and Cece said again and again look it was self-defense she was asked things like how were you feeling at the time of the crime were you angry they were trying to get her to admit that like you were angry so you killed this person and she's like 
She's like, I was mad, but like my face, but like ultimately she was saying I did had no intention on killing this man. I did not wake up saying I'm going to kill a man in the street. This was an act of self-defense. He was coming at me really hard. And she's like, look, I didn't like stab him. Like, ah, I didn't, ah, I had the knife in my hand because I was feeling like somebody was coming to attack me and he ran into the knife. I didn't even know that he was punctured until he said, she stabbed me. She stabbed me and started laying on the ground. Right. It just like you collided into it and oh shit. But here's the thing. This entire time that she was being questioned, she did not have an attorney present. Y'all, if we've told you once, we've told you once again, if we told you a million times, make sure that you say those magic words. Man, please have a lawyer. Don't ask them for a lawyer. Request a lawyer. Request the lawyer. Do not say Don't ask them shit. Don't let me specify. Don't ask them if you need a lawyer. Ask them for your lawyer. Right. After the interrogation ended, it was a very long questioning day for her. She was handcuffed and placed in a male jail facility where she was immediately placed in solitary confinement. Now, if you're wondering why she was placed in a male prison, that is because Cece is actually a trans woman pre-op, which basically means pre-bottom surgery. So although Cece had been identifying as a woman for years, and even though she was taking hormones, since she still had the anatomy that she was born with, they placed her in a male facility for, quote-unquote, her own protection. It's June 11, 2011, and Cece finds out that she's being charged with second-degree murder. So, of course, we had to look it up for y'all, and according to fine law, second-degree murder is an intentional killing. Less serious than first-degree murder because... Some malicious factors aren't present, but both first and second degree murder in Minnesota have the aspects of felony murder rule. Felony murder is when you kill a person during the commission of another felony of another felony. Right. Like if you're burglarizing somebody or if you are um, sexually assaulting someone and that ended in their death. So what is the other felony that she's committing? Okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) can't tell you couldn't find it in all my research so hearing that you're being charged with murder is crumbling news already but then being sent immediately to solitary confinement can wreak havoc on your mental health especially if you just had a traumatic experience and cc already up to this point had a pretty fucking hard life like homeless up until around 18 if not even more right and i think on something i listened to or watched they said the reason she ended up leaving home at 13 she got in a fight with like her uncle and he had her pinned up against the wall choking her because she was dressing as a female and sneaking off to school dressing and even like her mom really was transphobic like growing up in that household as a child especially as a young black trans child like Mm -hmm. you need that love and support and it is harder to be in a house where you're just told you're wrong, you're wrong, you're horrible, than trying to figure figure it out and get it on your own, you know? And her mom's like, I would just ask him, like, can you just wear the girl clothes at the house and go to school? And, like, repeatedly, he, 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 Yes, he, using he, dead pronouns like crazy. And it's like, you see her asking, like, she's having a conversation, and she knows her mom is trying. And I think it's also that it's a transition that both parties have to go through. Right. And it's like the loss of a son, the the gain of a daughter, but the loss of a son, you know what I'm saying? And I guess certain, 
it's it what it is is the loss of expectations that you have for your child and they always come across as they're trying to protect their children and you know the world is not going to accept you and it's like fuck the world except i need me. Can you, you accept me? i need you to accept me. like if if nobody else gives a damn in this world can i at least know that you give a damn and at least know i'm safe here right so and she wasn't so she left yeah that's oh so when cc sat down with vulture she described what solitary confinement was like. She said, quote, I spent two months in jail in solitary confinement and then another three months in prison in solitary confinement. In solitary confinement, you're in a room for 23 hours of the day and you only get one hour out. So because you only have one hour out of a box, you have to think, what do I want to do with that hour? How do I want to ration that hour? She said that sometimes I had to choose between talking on the phone to family or taking a shower. She also says that it was really, really hard for her. She says they kept this constant light on and you can't really sleep well, so I could never get proper sleep. And it was really starting to weigh on me mentally. There wasn't any concept of time either. In jail, you don't have a clock. You really don't know because there aren't any windows. And that really wreaked havoc on her life. So according to the 2015 editor-in-chief at Connect Us, solitary confinement has quite a few cons. Some of them are basically that it violates inmates' human rights. So this is like cruel and unusual punishment, right? Like, it's literally a torture technique. You know, there are certain animals that they won't let you buy, not in pairs, because they're social creatures. And because you, they have to have someone. Yeah, You have to be with someone. You know, and even the most, like, isolated person, there's still natural chemistry that you want to have or con- natural connection that you want to have with somebody because we are natural animals that want connection with people. Yes. It's natural and you're depriving us of this natural yearning right and then again i guess expecting reform out of this shit right you're expecting me not to have and also according to that same article it solitary confinement it results in a lot of personality and mental disorders that can manifest while in solitary confinement which does not surprise me one absolute bit because i'm just thinking about how i've never been in solitary confinement but i have seasonal depression when i don't see the sun yeah and i've never had to choose between am i going to see the sun take a shower or call my mom, you know, mm-hmm. cruel and unusual. So Cece was still going with this self-defense plea, which it made a lot of sense to me. However, on June 15th, 2011, Cece wrote a letter to the editor at the Star Tribune, one of the local pretty popular newspapers. And in that letter, she writes about being in solitary confinement, what that's like for her being in a box for 23 hours, everything that we just explained and how they say that this is for her safety, but she can't understand why. How is this safe for me and my, or my mental health? She also writes in this letter that she didn't actually kill Dean. She says that she was taking the fall for someone else. And basically, after she got questioned, she found out, A, that he died, and B, that everybody said that she did it. So she was like, at the time, I just made up the story that I did because it seemed like the right option and I'm taking the fall for someone else. This went over really bad with the media because you sent it to the media so you know they're going to publish it and you're already saying a self-defense case. This crumbled her. This really messed her up. Because it doesn't at all line up with the story that anybody is telling. If it was just them two fighting, how is now somebody else the one who stabbed him? Right. And then when they ask her, they're like, did you write this letter? She says, she said, I did write it. Yes, I'm the one that wrote it, but I don't mean what I said in there. I was just exhausted. I was in denial. It was still self-defense. I'm back to, it was self-defense. It's hard. Like, I'm 
having a mental break and I'm thrown in a box. I'm not seeing sunlight. I just had a traumatic experience and I don't know. I feel like I could, I don't understand why she would write that letter, especially when you really already had such a solid case for you. That's, that's what's throwing me is why? Cause I think even still you could say I'm locked in here for self-defense. I'm in solitary. I think that would have been a much better plea to the media. Right. But Maybe she's coming at it with the view of they don't care that my trans ass is in solitary confinement because they're saying they're doing it to keep but her from being raped from other men. Right. But if she would have been in a women's prison, wouldn't she be less likely to be raped by men? Not not completely away from it because you still have your fucked up guards and all that shit. Right. But there's less men in there, and then the rates are just so drastic. They say for like. For trans women in a men prison, 51% of them experience sexual assault. For men, cisgender men in a men's prison, 4% of them experience sexual assault. That's a big difference. That's a huge fucking difference. So she said that I wrote, she basically says I wrote it, but I didn't mean it. So the detectives have her write this letter over and over again, comparing the handwriting. And they're like, okay, we're going to give you about three words at a time. You write, we're going to try and keep this pace going, okay? And just make to sure see you... if she remembers. Right. And she's like, I never denied writing the letter. I'm telling y'all I wrote the letter. I said I was delusional, but why are we doing all this work to prove that I wrote the letter if I'm not contesting that I wrote the letter? Right. So they're putting her through all of this and... She feels like basically the prosecution is trying to destroy her credibility. Like they're trying to find one discretion, you know, one one little thing that doesn't match just to say, okay, she's a liar. And she's like, no, I'm honest. This is the story that I'm telling you. She she goes back to her original story. She's like, it was self-defense. And from there, she remained in solitary confinement. And this is for months while her new lawyers get ready to take her case to trial. And... Throughout this time, Cece's story gained a lot of attention in the queer community. Trans Youth Support Network really took up the lead in fighting and protesting for Cece's charges to be dropped. They organized protests and rallies, and they were spray-painting free Cece everywhere. And she had her defense team paid for by her worldwide community of supporters. When preparing for this case to go to trial, there are a few things that the defense had up their sleeves. So they really were still sticking with, this is self-defense. So the first thing they wanted to do is they were trying to get as many of Cece's statements from her original interrogation thrown out because, well, she was questioned right after coming from the hospital with no sleep and completely exhausted and traumatized. So they're like, exhaustion, trauma, there is no way that she could have made a coherent statement that can be admissible in trial. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the court said no. They were like, that's going to go ahead and come on to trial. And so the defense is like, okay, okay. So they asked to bring in an expert witness to educate the jury on what it is like to be a black trans woman in America, the constant attack that black trans women are under, what life is like for them, just so that they can understand, because you may not have a jury where there's somebody that's trans on it, but you need to make sure that they are equipped with everything they need to understand your defendant and understand why she would have acted in the way that she did. Court said no. Which I think makes perfect sense. I, which it's like let you me bring in an ex community. You no. bring in an expert witness on text messages. So why not bring in an expert witness on a community that you have no idea about? Because let me tell you something. 
I think trans is one of the biggest misunderstood topics that we talk about, like, throughout these days. Like, and that's the whole issue about trans is it's misunderstood. Exactly. You don't understand it. Fear so comes from that it. lack of knowledge. Exactly. And so to keep these people ignorant about what's going on and that just leaves them in there with their prejudice about it. Because I think that's something that everybody has, like, some prejudice to, or I guess prejudice is the right word, whether positive prejudice positive prejudice or negative prejudice but everybody has some prejudice to it you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and you have an idea and a stance about it because it's so we've talked about it in the military we're talking about how to share bathrooms like it's it's filtering into our lives where we have a decision about this thing you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and so i don't think it's fair to let people come in and not clarify and take away some of the myths about it you know what i'm saying right so the last thing that the defense was trying to get put in trial is additional photos of Dean's body after post-mortem. They, of course, had the wound, but what was missing in those pictures where the wound wasn't is a three-inch swastika tattoo. So they were like, boom. Racist. Racist. Right here. It's tattooed on them. It's like tattooed on them. So they were like, this is what we need because turns out... Oh, of course, with that tattoo, he doesn't have a squeaky clean record. He had a record, a pretty long record, as well as affiliation with white supremacy organizations, which does not surprise, us surprise you. It doesn't surprise no. me. So the defense was like, OK, let's get these additional photos of his body in court. And the court was like, mm, nah, can't do excessive photos of the deceased. And it's like, but this makes a point. <laughs> They also wouldn't allow in Dean's toxicology report because knowing what s drugs were in his system would be very helpful. Like, are you on coke? Are you on meth? We know that you were drunk. Mm -hmm. Like, we can tell. We knew that. So I'm pretty sure he was on coke, but they would. They were like, "You're not. You're not letting it in." Right. They're not letting it in. So we can't say for sure. And you know, like being on coke, like that's a drug that gives you like high adrenaline, high aggression. You know what I'm saying? These are side effects that come with it, which would explain the, you know, first of all, his brother said sometimes, you know, depending on what type of mood he's in, he gets racist. Meaning how maybe how high he fucking is is how racist he is. Depending you know what I'm saying? on his mood depends on his racism. Yeah, that's great. Right. <laughs> so the angrier you are, the less judgment you hold at that time because you're fucking drunk. Right. That's what I have to depend my life on. When the cards are stacked up against you like this, it's hard to gamble for your life. Like, it's a real life game of deal or no deal right so they're trying to come up with a plea bargain that cc and the prosecutor can both be satisfied with on september 22nd 2011 they offer a plea bargain that will give her seven years in prison mm -hmm. so they're like say you did it you go to jail there's not going to be a jury of your peers and she's like no deal howie mandel's up there with the briefcase and he's like in one box you say you did it and you will not stand in front of a jury and your peers and you will get seven years in prison or you can pick another box. She says no deal. She's going to go for another box because fuck seven years. Right. <laughs> so he calls the banker. They go back to negotiate another plea deal for this trial. <laughs> it's October 6, 2011, and they out on a second degree murder with intent, which is 300 months, basically 25 years. So they upped her charges because she decided to not take the initial plea deal sounds like a bitch move to me yeah <laughs> so you know the banker calls back down and he's like bad move you know so her defense 
and her large group of supporters, they start waiting for trial to begin. So it's April of 2012, and my favorite thing happens, which is jury selection. It's my favorite thing on television when they ask you a whole bunch of questions, and you're trying to either be on the jury or not be on the jury. But jury selection happens. But, you know, the jury's supposed to be very unbiased, hopefully doesn't know anything about the case. But the thing is, CC supporters made some fucking noise in the streets, and they were sticking behind her. They were doing calls. They were doing all the protests. So it was impossible to not hear her name and know who she is and know something about the case. It kind of reminds me of the George Floyd case. Like, you... I was really wondering, how are you going to get... You must live under a rock Well, during the time, you... I guess during the time, you have to promise that you can still be unbiased and then while you're actually in the jury you can't watch tv you can't do anything they keep you in a box you know what i'm saying a lot of these promise that you're not going to be biased if you don't even realize your own biases what a wonderful point friend (laughs) i don't know how to answer that question but it's a great point that maybe some people smarter than us will debate because yeah but what they realized is when they were finding the juries that a lot of people knew about the case it was a still you know very high profile case and they it was very hard to find people that didn't know who cc was or at least had an idea of the case so the defense felt pretty confident that that proceedings could go on without a hitch this made the prosecutors nervous well let's say for the record that the white man said that he was not nervous and the media had nothing to do with what they did but you know nervous he was not shook (laughs) But either way, they looked and they saw that not only did CeCe have great lawyers, she also had a support committee that was fighting tooth and nail in the streets. And it's basically like, what can you prove in court? You cannot prove that she intended on killing this man. And he also says, like, after looking into this case, he understands CeCe more and understands why she would have reacted the way she did that night. But you argue against her having somebody come and explain the trans community to you. Right. But it allowed you clarity to reduce her sentence and give her a better plea deal. So just make it make sense. Make it make sense for us. We're really asking for it. On May 2nd, 2012, prosecution presented the plea bargain of second degree manslaughter, which is a long way away from second degree murder. She ends up accepting this plea bargain. So, in Minnesota, when you plead guilty to a crime, you have to also admit what you did. Like, you have to stand up and say, this is the course of events that happened. Yes, I was doing this. Yes, it was manslaughter. Yes, there were scissors. And they asked questions like they asked her. And so you admit that you were handling the scissors in such a way that caused unreasonable risk to Mr. Schmitz. And so she said, had to be like, yes. Which is very hard, especially for her supporters, because... Even though it's not murder, she still has to admit that she was aware of this crime and it didn't go to trial for self-defense. When honestly, I feel like they overcharged her from the top. You know what I'm saying? And this is not something that they have to do in Georgia. Like, if you say I'm guilty, be like, all right, I'm guilty. Give me my time. But in Minnesota, they have to do it. I know they have to also do it in Michigan because Michelle Blair, since everybody wants me to do that case that I'm not doing, uh, Michelle Blair also has to stand up and say what she did so you can find out her case on YouTube. So on June 4th, 2012, Cece finally had her sentencing. She was sentenced to 41 months in prison. She was given 245 days of time served from when she was in jail. And then she was required to pay $6,410 to the Schmitz family and restitution for like funeral expenses and stuff like that. When she was sentenced, she got a chance to speak. And she said, quote, 
I'm sure that to Dean's family, he was a loving, caring person, but that is not what I saw that night. I saw a racist, transphobic, narcissistic bigot who did not have any regard for my friends and I, end quote. She was placed in the Minnesota Correctional Facility St. Cloud, which is another men's facility. Um, There she had the chance to go forward with a civil suit, um, depending on if she felt safe, if she did not feel feel safe, um, to be transferred to a female prison or not. And kind of, Cece was like, look, I face worse things in my life than prison. Mm. While she was incarcerated, her story still gained lots of national attention and international attention she still had supporters all over the world and she even got the attention of one miss laverne cox and laverne cox ended up meeting cc and started working on a documentary about cc's life that documentary is where we got most of the information for our episode today yep yep she was released on january 13 2014 and cc was greeted outside the saint cloud prison by her friends and laverne and all of that and all of that for the first time in a long time, she could breathe fresh air. She sees trees and houses. She gets to eat. I think one of the first things she went to do was got a wig. Yep. <laughs> Which, same, girl. Listen, first thing I'm going to have to do is look like somebody. I ain't looked like somebody in a long time. Period. You know, she got out of, She only ended up serving um, two-thirds of her sentence, 19 months. And she got, she got out early because of good behavior and, of course, her time served. But to this day, she still struggles with PTSD from both the attack and her time in prison. You know, because those 19 months... That's a lot. A lot of that time was spent in solitary. And it happened so quickly. Yeah. She does not, however, let this trauma hold her back. Cece was basically leading her own movement from jail. Like, when you talk to the people from her support group, they're like, yeah, Cece was okaying and calling shots on all of this stuff. Right. There's so many pictures of them going and talking to her. And, yeah. So, she was very involved in her own justice. So, when she got out, she wanted to make sure that she continued her work. You know, not to just fight for herself, but to fight for other trans people who are in this position. Specifically... Because so many black trans women don't survive, you know? So The life expectancy for a trans person is 35, which is pushing. The average. The average trans person lives to 35, whether it's from being killed or from suicide. So Cece is just a story of the person that made it out, you know what I'm saying? That phoenix rising, like her tattoo. Right. She specifically wanted to focus on fixing the justice system and basically focusing on the prison industrial complex of how it goes. Right. Um, and right, because she says in an interview, she's like, yeah, I was in a male's prison, but the whole thing is fucked up. First, she was like, prison ain't safe for anybody, but it especially is not safe for us. She's like, even if I was going to go to a women's prison, I would have still been in danger. You know, she was like, I was hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. They focused on her sexuality so much. Like, she's like, I had to wear baggy clothes so you couldn't see my curves. They wouldn't allow her to wear shorts. Like, she couldn't the, wear shorts. The guys got issued shorts and she wasn't allowed to. Because you might see that she got hips or something. Right. Which is, you looking too hard, mind your business. I think what's interesting is kind of how do you fix it? Because... Everybody's like, reform, reform, reform. But Angela Davis was saying, the answer is not prison reform, it's prison abolition. Right. She said what prison reform does is just is like a more organized way to keep doing this you're, you're fucked up You're still fucking shit. up, yeah. And like, she's like, for example, 
if you make a safe space for the trans people, you now need to fill up this space. Right. So now, now we need more trans people in this space. And now you're going to start arresting it. more people. Exactly. And trans women, especially, are at a high risk of being... Almost 90% of trans women have at least been arrested once. She was like, all Angela Davis said, all the efforts for reform have just increased arrest, has increased the prison population. Mm-hmm. Reform is not the answer. It's abolishing the system and starting it over. Correct. Because of the history, of, like, it wasn't built for us. The police started off as slave catchers. Right. And I mean, and Cece even says it herself. It also, I think it's important that she focuses on that because across the country, there's like... There's no general rule on how to deal with the trans people, right? So the federal law is that each case should be decided on a case-to-case basis after asking where they would feel safe. Right. Like their placement. Like, do you feel like you should be in a men or women's prison? And you should ask and decide on a case-to-case basis. So when Obama was president, he was like, you should put them where they identify their gender to be. When Trump was president, he said, go based off of biology. And that was his recommendation to the prisons. And so it's kind of really based off of, does this person decide and give a fuck about you and your trans life? Right. Which most of the times the answer is no. No, exactly. So after Cece got out of prison, she decided that she was taking up this abolition movement for herself. Of course, the documentary was being worked on that was um, co-produced by Laverne and hosted by Laverne Cox. She also ended up being included as the part of the Advocates Annual 40 Under 40 list in 2014. She was the keynote speaker for so many trans awareness, pride awareness um, events and milestones, and she still is an activist to this day. Now, if you're wondering what happened with Molly bitch ass, because you know that we had to come for her, let me tell you about Molly bitches. So Molly, because she definitely threw the first punch or the first Molly, the girl who she was who who hit her upside that who did the gash in the face, which was the first hit between the crews. She ended up being charged in May of 2012. So a whole year a later. A whole year later. <laughs> she was charged in May of 2012 with second degree assault with a deadly weapon and third degree assault causing substantial bodily harm. And she got six months in jail and probation. If anything, like, you should be charged with murder because, because of you, your friend is dead. Right. You know? Starting shit out in these streets that you can't finish. That you can't fin- No, but she said she could take us all on, right? Oh, Lordy. All right, y'all. It is time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I ain't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have done it. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have not wrote that letter like that. That the letter was the big kicker, but... Can we talk about the fact that if you're put based on your anatomy, if you're placed based off of your anatomy, black trans women... Think about Cece. She was homeless from the age of 13, Surgery is expensive. As fuck. So it is hard enough to get into the body that you feel 100% comfortable in. And now you're punished for not being in the body, in that body. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, that letter was, that's what fucked her up. I agree. I feel like that's, that's where her story lost consistency. And I think she knew that too. Like, I don't feel like she meant the letter. Like, I was telling Mariah, she wrote, she wrote specifically in the letter, it wasn't me. That was not me who stabbed the, you know, that was not me. And I was like, what if she meant it as, like, that was, you know, when people just black out. Right. And they just, like, that wasn't me. Like, I don't know who that person was. Knowing 
full and damn well it was them, but they'd be like, I don't know who that person was. And she also mentions that while she's being interrogated, she's already told everybody has said that you did it. Right. And so she's like, I guess if everybody said that I did it, then I, I must have. And that happens. Like, I've been angry enough where I don't know what the fuck happens. And I'd be like, I did what? Right. And you'd be like, and people be telling you the story afterwards. And you'd be like, all of that. you low-key be embarrassed of yourself. You'd be like, oh, damn. Right. And so. I lost my shit. Parole or no parole, she got out. I think that the charge. I think that this was overcharged from the very beginning. It should have been a self defense. It should have been a self defense. It should have been a no brainer self defense. And had the roles been reversed and the races been reversed, oh, this would have been. Oh, they didn't do this. Oh, the white man didn't. It would have been. If the roles were reversed, none of this would have happened. And then something on that documentary was saying like, in order to be self defense in Minnesota, you have to attempt to run. I'm not turning my back on this crazy big ass white man running towards me. Screaming all the things that show that he hate me. I'm not turning my back on him. He's already yanked me by my hair once. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not turning my back on his ass again. You got me fucked up. And I feel like they... And it was like, that's why you can't prove self-defense. Because you didn't, you didn't necessarily try and flee. You have to run. You have to be... But she drew this drawing. And in the drawing, her back is away from him you know what i'm saying and it's further down from where her scuffle with molly happened so you can see that there's an attempt to go in the other direction and she was followed in that direction they but maybe it's because maybe it's because like she kind of walked away and was still facing i think it's probably like technical technical shit it's really technical shit and then one of the big things in her interrogation they asked her how did you feel and they were trying to get her mad she said, I mean, they were like, were you angry? Were you upset? How did you feel? And then she said, I was mad about my face. And I was like, ah, that's where they got you. Because all you had to say, I was scared. I was scared. I was scared. And what I, was- I don't understand is if they were asking me, I know they're asking, are you angry because your face got cut? But the question should be, were you angry? Were you angry because they were calling you these racial slurs, which then turns it into a hate crime? You attacking me and right. calling me racial slurs. As many times as you did, and through all those, you can get you can get a hate crime through racial slurs. You can get a hate crime through sexuality. Like right. she, he's got several triggers. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that qualifies for that. Right. And being a black trans woman gives a ticks a lot of boxes on the things that he hates. You know what I'm saying? And he felt justified to follow her. Right. But it's like, damn, I survived, and I'm being punished for surviving. taking care of myself. Like, right. For, for making it out. Because any other person, if you had anything sharp on you, if a nigga is coming at me, I'm grabbing whatever the fuck I can. I'm scared. I'm scared of you. I don't think niggas understand how scared they are in this day and age. But I was in L.A. and this white van, me and my sister are walking down the street in this white van. Like, you can, we're walking through a neighborhood and he pulls over into the residential and we start to turn the other day. He whips that bitch around and pulls out and he was like oh i had to get off my phone with my supervisor to talk to you i'm like uh his friend is in the passenger seat lifting his lips Ew. and glaring it look he looked like a goblin the way he was gleaming at me i was like yeah that is not attractive that's i like feel the, unsafe that's like when you and i went to go get coffee the other day and that man came up to us and was like excuse me man. yeah i just wanted to look at you she said you see me <laughs> here i am and he was Cassie's like, like get in the fucking car this man's like i just want to look at you can you come closer Tessie's like get in the fucking car <laughs> oh my god like that is not it is scary it is creepy nigga change our change our approach right 
y'all are coming off real desperate, real, I'm just going to snatch you and have you ever. Like, and it's scary. It's scary. You're scaring us. All right, so it is time for our reviews. This one I scrolled back down to my birthday because this was posted on my birthday by Love Miss Liss. Hey, Love Miss Liss. She says, so into y'all. Five stars. I stumbled across this page on TikTok that plugged the podcast. Upon listening, I am so happy that the perspective is very pro-black and informative. The stance I hear on each episode speaking to why and how a system in place failed the victim or even the killer in question. Keep providing the positive words and speaking in favor of black women considering the circumstances. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This one is from Brit Nicole, 2012. She says, I love this podcast. Feels like I'm discussing news still with my girlfriend. Can't wait to see you all blow up. <laughs> Me neither, sis. Right. I feel like somebody should just suggest us for black excellence for the read or something. Yes, like, shout us out so we can yeah. be everything. Y'all help us grow so we can help y'all. <laughs> Alrighty, so we've, we've got some really exciting things coming to you next week, but we can't talk about them yet. Um... If you want to keep up with us, you can find us on a multitude of things. If you want to email us for ad space, if you have a suggestion for a case, if you just want to say hey, you can email us at sisterswhokillpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Instagram, well, you'll find pictures and um, sometimes I do fun things on Instagram. That's <laughs> sisterswhokillpod. If you want to follow me on TikTok because, you know, I be getting it on TikTok. It's sisterswhokillpodcast. <laughs> what is it? It's sisterswhokillpodcast. Tazzy be on Twitter. Sometimes Mariah infiltrates her Twitter, but... I mean, sometimes it pops in, like, I'm a Twitter user and you're not, but... Yeah. I, I'm trying to give y'all something. When it's vibey. When it's vibey. When Twitter is vibey, it's Tazzy. When it's like, ah, we're gonna just have fun, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't tell our personalities by now, then I don't know what to tell Right, you. <laughs> I feel like there should be guesses. We should just leave everything unlabeled and everybody just be like, who am I talking to? Hmm, feels like Taz. And they just leave our, their guesses. Um, but yeah, Twitter, Sisters Who Kill. I'm simple. Yep, and go ahead and join the discussion group. Make sure you answer the questions before joining. I don't have anything else. Talk to us. We talk back. All right, I got a flight to catch.